uh, his writing is sort of cyclical. Rather than it being building blocks of logic, John writes in, in circles. Commentators say he, sort of, he does one circle of, of light, truth, life, and sort of applies it as he goes. And then he sort of goes out and just says the exact same thing, but in a wider, more broad circle. And, and he's sort of like the Puritans in, in that sense sometimes. He just, he sort of, he's very repetitive, very, very repetitive. And yet each time he's going through this cycle, he's making different points and, and hitting different markers. So he, it's an amazing book to read. I'm going to start by reading chapter one here, but you just need to know uh, that this is, uh, this is hard for me, preaching John, making sense of John, and maybe if you're like me and you come to the book of First John and you sometimes think, didn't he just say that? Didn't he just make that point? I'm confused. You're in good company. You're in very good company. So, First John chapter 1, we can read from the first four verses, the, the prologue, the opening up that he, he writes here. This is the Apostle John to the churches. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and which was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And all God's people who, want, who love the Word of God, who want to conform their life to the authority of the Word of God, said, Amen. Amen. This is the Word of our triune living God for us this evening. We need to know just a little bit about the first book of John uh, before we start unraveling all that it means. And it's, it, we see there in verse 4, one of his purpose statements. The reason that he wrote this book is so that all Christians who might pick it up and read it in its entirety and understand what he's meaning will come away with a greater sense of joy, a greater sense of assurance of who they are in Jesus Christ, and a greater sense of clarity about what Jesus has done for them. Yet, it has been my experience that most Christians, speaking as a, as a pastor now, most Christians who go and read 1 John do so because they're lacking joy, lacking assurance, lacking, lacking certainty that they are saved. So they go and crack open this book and they read it and then, then they call, call me. They call their pastor. They send an email and go, I'm, as it turns out, not saved. I have zero joy, zero assurance. I just read this book and all of the black and white things that John says like, he who is born of God no longer sins. Go and put your hand up for that one. You start reading, trying to gain assurance and joy, and you read that, and you realize that since you started the book, you've already disqualified yourself. You realize that it puts up such high commands for love and loving the Word of God and understanding the Son of God, and, and, and it disqualifies us if we judge ourselves according to this. Why is it that so many will come to this book, which John is writing to us, so that we would have joy, and they come away with less joy? I think it's, it's misunderstood. Its context is misunderstood. Its, its applications are misunderstood. The words that John would say are not, are not applied in this pastoral, loving way that John has written them. I want to give us a little bit of background and information around the book of John. It was, it was written to a church, really the Ephesian church. The Ephesian church is such a blessed church in Scripture. There's so much that happens there. But in Ephesus, there was in the first century, uh, about the 80s to the 90s, 
they had a massive church split as a heretic came through by the name of Serenthus and taught many what would become one day the heresy of Gnosticism. And they led a large swath of Christians out of the church. They started their own church and their own teaching. And the church there in Ephesus, that this church who is receiving this letter, they are a hurting post-church split church. They've gone through the war. They, I, w- I want you to, you to picture a, a, a band of soldiers. This is the Ephesian church. A band of soldiers sort of walking back from the battlefield. And they were winners. They were victorious. They, de- they, they vanquished the enemy. But they're confused. They're still a little hurting because it, it was a surprise attack. They, they weren't, they weren't re- readying for this for months and months. It was sort of a surprise attack that really came up from within the city walls. And, and some of the people that they had to kill and some of the people that they had to battle were in fact their own brothers and their own sisters, their friends. And even though they can march back to the city and, and they won and they didn't lose, they're not sad because of that and they're, they're glad that they have victory, yet they're very confused. They're still, they're still binding up not just the wounds of their flesh but the wounds of their conscience. Did we do the right thing? Was that worth it? In a spiritual sense, that's where this church is at. They've risen up, 1 John chapter 2 tells us, that some people rose up and and the Ephesian church opposed them. We even read this in Revelation. The the letter that Jesus writes to the Ephesian church mentions this, that they hated the teaching of the Nicolaitans, which is is what comes up today, that they they opposed and tested those who called themselves apostles but weren't, and that they won. They, They pushed out the false teaching and false Christians, and yet no church going through that will be able to, in the next breath, simply smile and crack open a cold brew and sit back and relax. How painful it is when a church goes through this sort of spiritual trauma. And it's to that church, in that context, that John writes as the apostle of love who brings the thunder to remind them of how important that battle, how important that battle was. How important it is to stand on the truth, once for all, delivered to the saints in the gospel. Serenthus, as we said, this false teacher, he was a Jew who grew up in Egypt. And he had actually uh, 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 developed somewhat of a pagan, Egyptian, uh, 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 ancient Greek mythology-styled theology of the world, uh, which would one day become Gnosticism, as we were talking about. He grew up there. He developed this teaching that he believed he understood the world. And really, it was was, uh, an involvement with the spiritual realm, that, that we don't so much get what we believe from the book and from the apostles and from the teacher Jesus, rather... They're all good and they're somewhat helpful, but we download ours from the spirit realm. We are the gurus who go up onto the mountain and have the vision. We are those who are always in communion with the spirits of the world telling us this divine Gnostic truth. Gnostic is simply the Greek word for knowledge. They touted that they had the knowledge that you guys, who haven't been enlightened and gone through those experiences, you don't have, but we have that knowledge. This is Serenthus. Serenthus moved up from Egypt and actually moved into Ephesus. He was there in Ephesus where he started a whole school. There is actually church history to suggest to us that that in uh, uh, the first century when some Jews went up from Jerusalem to go and convince one of the first Gentile churches, the Antioch church, when they went there to convince them that to be saved, even though you're a Gentile, you can get saved, you just have to accept circumcision. Faith is great, believing in Jesus is tremendous, and hearing the apostolic proclamation is good, but it's not enough. 
You need to enter in through the Jewish pathway of circumcision, then you can be saved. There's, there's church history that tells us, some of the, the people who lived at the same time as John said, that it was Serenthus who stirred up those people to go there. Serenthus is, if you haven't caught on to it already, he's a bad guy. He was in Ephesus where he started the school, the sort of a, a, a sort of in-home uh, a seminary, this, this philosophy school where he would teach people and send them around the, the city, the ancient world. In fact, he was, um, uh, uh, he, he was, he, in, he had some beliefs about Jesus. He had some beliefs about the resurrection. He had some beliefs that was sort of stolen from Christianity, but altogether uh, 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 poisoned with his own teaching. He was somebody, or at least his type of person, is something that was prophesied by Jesus when he said, many false Christs will come. It was prophesied by Paul when Paul said to this Church, to the Ephesian elders some 40 years ago, he said to them, there will be wolves that will come and some that will rise up from within you. Be firm, stand firm, be ready, take up the armor of God to fight in that day. And even Timothy had been a pastor there and now John writes to them. This is a very, very blessed church. He writes to them to encourage what they have done in their spiritual hurting and to bring the thunder into the area of false teaching that had been propagated. John, if you haven't gotten to know John a little bit, it's always fun, at least in my study, and I'm going to bring you along that journey a little bit to sort of get to know the writer of the books. We always do this as we start out a new book. We sort of get to know the author. It's, it's always good fun. If we, if we just sort of look back through the, the history books, you go and open up your uh, Britannic Britannica or your encyclopedia or your, your history book, whatever, or just Wikipedia it, you'll get St. John up in a shiny little picture and he's got one of those, uh, you know, glows above his head and he's an old man with a white beard and, 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 he's, he's, and he's probably given somebody something free. He's the apostle of love. That's what church history told us. In his old age, he, he died the oldest apostle. Uh, every other apostle had been killed before he would die. He, he, in fact, is the only apostle that we know of who died of old age. All of the rest were butchered for their faith. And John was uh, an old man when he died, at the, uh, but when he was a young man, Jesus called him. In fact, there's reason to believe, if we just do the maths, unless John lived to be well over 100, he was probably in his late teens when Jesus called him. Probably mid-teens, 15, 16, maybe 14, 13 is reasonable, somewhere there. And he started out as a, well, he started as a teenage guy, which is synonymous with immature and hot-headed. That, that's where John started. He, he, was, he was a fisherman, remember? So he would have been, he would have been calloused hands, rough nature. He, he probably would have had to, kept on being uh, encouraged to use uh, less R-rated words by Jesus. All right, fishermen have not really changed over the centuries. He's that kind of guy. Worse yet is that he was called with his brother James. So James and John was, were, were, were a real uh, power team in the apostolic ministry and everything's just more macho and more sinful when you've got your brother there, especially when he's a teenager as well, also a fisherman. So these guys sort of come from this somewhat affluent, wealthy family because they, they had a fishing business. They worked with their dad, calloused hands, big beards, rough language. This is John. And he, <coughs> Jesus, as throughout the ministry of Jesus, that he was uh, uh, walking with Jesus, learning from Jesus, he had some of those real high moments and those really low moments. He was called the, the one that Jesus loved. There seems to be some kind of nearness, some kind of intimacy in the friendship of Jesus and John that was unique, that was greater than the others. He was his right-hand 
guy. He loved John, and John loved Jesus. But he had low moments. For example, there is the uh, uh, situation, and you, you probably remember this, uh, uh, when his brother James and himself, John, they, they approach Jesus behind their mum, sort of, you know, usher her into his presence and, and ask her if, if she can ask Jesus, but don't mention us, uh, if, if she could request that Jesus, when you're in your kingdom, right, you vanquish all your enemies, set up your throne, I think, I think what would look great is three of us up there. I think it would look great if you're there at your father's right hand, but, but maybe James and John can be there next to you. We want you to agree to that without any conditions. Agree that James and John can be at your right and your left in glory. And Jesus simply took them to town. As teenagers who could take a beating, he just told the other disciples and them how foolish that kind of thinking was. That's not how we think as Christians. And James and John were thoroughly rebuked for this embarrassing request. But gives a little bit of an insight into the kind of guy that John was. My favorite story of John, uh, this is a personal favorite. It gets me out of, you know, it quells my conscience. Let me say that. They were sent into a Samaritan village. Jesus said, I'm going to go there. I want to preach. I want to heal their sick. I want to bless them. Go into the town, John and James, and find somewhere for me to sleep the night. Find somewhere to be hospitable to me. And so they went in, and having found no one that would receive Jesus, they come back out, the, the gentle-hearted evangelists that they were, and, and they said, Jesus, should we call down fire from heaven and toast him, right? And, and Jesus obviously said, not quite, not, not how we're going to operate at the moment, but, but that's John. He wants the throne, and from that throne, he, he just wants to call down fire on his enemies, that's letting us know a little bit about John. He was a thundery, fire-hearted, throne-desiring man, and therefore Jesus called him and his brother James, and I love this, they were called the Sons of Thunder. And, and, and one, one preacher, Mark Driscoll, he says, when I hear that, uh, I, I picture uh, uh, ACDC thunderstruck playing in a huge stadium with a, with a ring in the middle and James and John with belts across them in their speedos marching down the ramp to WWE. This is, this is a tag team wrestling uh, uh, team called the Sons of Thunder. That's what you should write, redneck, backwater, driving a Dodge Ram, have 12 rifles in the back, massive unshaven beards, B.O., that's James and John, the sons of thunder. And it's going to be that man who becomes, throughout church history, the, the apostle of love, apparently they called him. He's going to end up writing this book, which we read so much about, love for the brothers and showing the light of God that is not the same as fire from heaven. Right? Let's, let's make that clarification. He's grown. He's matured. John is, is this guy. He, he was rough. He was, he was definitely sinful. He was just far too much like us in his pride and his desire for glory. But through the life with Jesus, he became one of the inner three. Jesus actually, uh, you might know this, he had 72 followers that he chose to follow him. But his special 12 were the, those who had become the apostles except for Judas. But even within the 12, he had a specific three. A three that would follow him to those especially powerful moments. There was only three of them that went up to the mountain and saw the transfiguration of Jesus shining in glory. There was only three of them that went with Jesus into the house that he resurrected Jairus' daughter. There was only three of them that were called even closer to go and pray with him in the Garden of Gethsemane moments before he was taken to be killed. And that was Peter, James, and John. John was privy to much of what Jesus did in a uniquely intimate way. 
he would become, I like to read this book, and if you read this book, you get the idea that while church history says he was the apostle of love, and we get that, he was also an apostle of thunder. He didn't lose that. While he, he lost his, his fire-bringing, throne-desiring you know, heart, he still kept the, that part of him that was God-given, which was strong, which was firm, which was defensive for the truth of God. But God took that and he sanctified it and he forged it in such a way in John's heart that he is now a defender of the truth. He is now an equipper of the church and he is a gentle-hearted, loving pastor, an old, old man now, the apostle of love and thunder. And so he writes this book. He writes this book with a bone to pick. He knew Serenthus. Serenthus and John in church history were living at the same time. He knew this false teacher. He writes this book against this very teaching that he was propagating. In fact, there's a story, uh, and we don't know how true it is, but for my sake, I'm, I'm going to say it was very true. It definitely happened that, that John was in one of the Roman bathhouses, the Apostle John there soaking and probably healing from one of the beatings that he had gotten. And he was, he was there healing in the pool house. And then Serenthus came in to bath there. And John, in a hurry, fled, threw on his towel and ran out. And, and as one of his disciples was chasing, saying, John, where are you going, man? Did you, did you leave something in the pool? Well, why, why are you running? He said, Serenthus has just made his way into the bathhouse. Let us flee, lest the roof fall on us as it kills him. So he still, he's still kind of the, the guy who, who wants things to fall down on people. He's just not praying for it anymore. He's that sanctified. But John knew Serenthus. He knew him to be an enemy of the church. He despised what he taught, mainly because it was an affront to the gospel, an affront to God's people, an affront to God's son. All those things stirred up in John the need to write this book. Let's just get ourselves into the mindset of the church of Ephesus, and then we're going to start pulling apart the text. Ephesus, like we said, if you've looked at the Mediterranean map, it's sort of Maybe the two o'clock, if you're working on a, working on a dial, it's uh, up and around the corner from uh, uh, Israel. If you head straight north and then head west towards Rome, uh, that area there, Turkey, uh, which is common day Turkey area, that was Asia Minor, and there is where Ephesus was. It was one of the main port cities. If you're going from Rome to Asia, you're going to land in Ephesus. It's a huge port city, massive for business, highly intellectual, highly cultural, highly wealthy. And it was also a city that Paul had planted a church in in the early days. So that we, we can reason that the church there would have been thriving. It would have been growing. It would have been huge, multicultural. It would have been, would have been enormous. And also we, we learned that, that the church there had received many migrants as as the Rome, Romans swept through Israel and were destroying them because the Jews and the Romans had a war in the first century that culminated in AD 70, as they were doing that, many migrant Christians who were Jewish fled to the city of Ephesus. And also, sort of at the same time, all the Jews and the Jewish Christians were getting kicked out of Rome from the west. And so they also came to the next major city, which was Ephesus. So this is, a, this is a highly packed, important city as we think about New Testament history. And we've, we've already said, Paul planted it, and then he returned for about three years later on, and then he sent back Timothy, his very own disciple. Only a couple of churches were pastored by one of his own disciples, 
Uh, that was the church of Ephesus. He had a lot of work to do there, Timothy. And, and then after Timothy's work there, church history tells us that, that John then labored there in the later decades of his life. This is a blessed church. This is a highly fed church. This is a well-taught church. And yet in church, in came Serenthus. In came the teaching of Serenthus. Maybe he'd even worked his way into them before they realized who he was, before they realized how many people's houses he was going to, and tricking, and teaching, and convincing, and fooling, deceiving, and lying. Serenthus had come and waged war on this church. He is what John will call later on an antichrist. In fact, I think that as, as, Paul, uh, sorry, as John uh, 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 singularizes here, and he, he only really does it in passing, he doesn't talk about the, the big end of the world figure, the Antichrist, but he's talking about the Antichrist has come. This is him. I think he's referring to Serenthus and all those like Serenthus, all those who follow in the heresy of Serenthus are those who are Antichrist. But this battle raged. This church rose up and fought for the truth of God. They saved their lives. They saw many lost, many left, and John writes to the overcomers. John writes to the church as a pastor to bring the love that they need and to bring the thunder that they stood for. He is a heavyweight here taking on the heavyweight Serenthus. This is a hard-hitting, black-and-white, doctrinally heavy, spiritually-needed book that will give us joy as we understand it. So let's go into the text. In the first four verses right here, we will start pulling it apart. <clears throat> All right, first we see that, that he, he doesn't start with who he is and all of the welcomes and the greetings. He just gets straight into it. The lightning is struck and the thunder is sounding. He says, that which was from the beginning. This is Paul. This is, sorry, John. I'm going to do that all of the time. I'm just used to preaching Paul. I told you. I told you. Uh, John, I'm going to do it. I got to, yep. John, John is writing something about which has been known, believed, from the beginning. As he says it in these very first words, he's already taking a swing at the Gnostic teaching and heresy. The Gnostic teaching loved that it was novel. It, it, sort of, it sort of prided itself, and all of the teachers prided itself that, that they, had, they had these things which, which it stretches back to eternity. And, and we know all these things about the cosmic truths, but the revelation that we have entered into this understanding is new. Man, John's still cracking on about this 80-year-old gospel. Well, they're still talking about Jesus. He was a generation ago. When are we going to get something new? Oh, you want something new? You've been following Jesus for a while, living holy, sharing the gospel, repenting of sin, singing songs to him for 30 years. Aren't you bored of that, Ephesus? Because we've got something pretty new for you. There's something very exciting that is sort of Christianity 2.0. Everything that the apostles wanted to give to you but couldn't, we've now got this new, novel, delicious teaching. And John doesn't try and come in and in, in the culture wars and the heresy wars, try and convince that he's actually got the most exciting, he's actually got the most novel new teaching. No, he, he goes old school. He says, I'm going to preach to you, remind to you the same thing we preach to you which is of old, that which is from the beginning. Pretenders, pretenders come up with new teaching. God's people hold fast to old 
old truths. John writes, that which is from the beginning. Not, not like the Gnostics, not like Serenthus who will say, oh, well, we're teaching is not in the writings. You won't find this in the prophecies. You won't find this from Jesus. This is new. This is us. This is newly given and fresh from heaven. No, they write what is from the beginning. And he says, <clears throat> he says, that which was from the beginning. We can look at John chapter 1, the, the, the gospel of John that John had written before this. He says in opening up that book, he says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So, so, so this Word is a He, it's a person, who is God and who is with God and is from the beginning. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. He's starting in the very same vein. The message that we're preaching is the message that, that is the, the same message that has always been being given by Jesus' followers, but the content of our message goes back not just to 33 AD, not just back to the incarnation when that word took on flesh. What we are proclaiming is from the beginning in such a manner that it is before all other things. The one who we proclaim is Jesus, who was in the beginning, who is the eternal Son of God, who in fact began the beginning. That's who we proclaim. The thunder rattles the walls of this church. The false teachers and those who would believe their deception are hiding under furniture as this reality of God comes thundering into the house. That which was from the beginning. But also, that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, and which we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. So first of all, this life that we're talking about, this, this life is from the beginning, but also this life was made manifest in history. Even verse 3 goes on to say, <clears throat> uh, sorry, verse 2, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us that which we have seen and have heard, we proclaim also to you. You're getting the point about repetition, right? He doesn't breathe. He doesn't use commas. All of that is put in in the English later. Verse 1 through to 4 is all one big long sentence in the original Greek. That which is from the beginning, that which is eternal, that which is original, became manifested. It came into this life that we Live. We saw it, we heard it, we touched it. In every single sense, the, the Gnostics, the proto-Gnostics, meaning the, the, those, the, the, the before Gnosticism, that's what proto means, sort of the first uh, a version of Gnosticism, which is what Serenthus would teach, the proto-Gnostic teachers were Docetists and Dualists. Chuck them down, they'll impress somebody at dinner later. Docetists and Dualists, meaning they had this dualistic view of the world that there is the spiritual realm and that there is the physical realm. Doesn't sound too bad so far. But they also believe that the spiritual realm was created by the ultimate true God, the all-beginning God, and that the physical world had been created by an evil God. 
an evil God that had been created by another God who was a little bit more righteous than him, who had been created by another God who was a little bit more righteous, who was made by another God who was a little bit more righteous, and you can see where I'm going, and generation after generation of the gods, what they called the, the play Roma, the generations of the gods, had come from the original good God who would never make the evil physical world, for physicality is evil. But when one God became so sinful, so fallen, so far removed from perfect righteousness, he created the earth that we now live in. And he bound our good spirits to this horrible, sinful, evil world. Therefore, you can see what would be entirely, utterly, fundamentally against the plan of that original good God would be to take on the flesh that is so evil. They were docetists. Meaning, so we've covered dualism, this, this spirit versus flesh mentality. They were docetists, though, because they couldn't deny that some kind of divinity had been manifested through Jesus of Nazareth. You're not, you're not going to convince Christians to follow you if you don't at least tip the hat to Jesus being some kind of divine being. So what they taught was docetism. Dos, 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 uh, the docetists comes from the Greek word to appear or to seem to foolishly appear as like a mirage. So they believed that Jesus had come, and he was a God, not the God, but he was a God, but he was not in the flesh. He appeared to be in the flesh. He was a spirit that sort of gave off a mirage, but he could not really be touched. He couldn't really be, be smelt and rubbed up against and seen in the flesh. But John says in his gospel that the Word, the eternal God, became flesh. He was incarnated. And today he says that we saw him. Good enough. Dostists can agree to that. We saw him with our eyes. It wasn't just a spiritual sight. Starting to make some trouble here, John. Making the false teachers not appreciate the, the unity in the church. He says, and which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. There's no wiggle room here for the false teaching. There's no docetism that's going to find its way into John's teaching. He's saying, I was there. The other 12 apostles, now dead, we were there. We touched his body. He was in a real human body. We saw him die a physical death. We saw him rise a physical new body. And in fact, just so that we might be convinced, while Thomas was doubting, Jesus said, touch my body, touch my scars. I am not a ghost, for spirits do not have flesh and bone as you see that I have. And John records that in chapter 20. There's no room here for the false teaching. There's no room made for coexisting with this false teaching. John proclaims that that word which is eternal was made manifest in this life. What the heretics lacked in, in witnesses, in eyewitnesses, they made up with lies and with imaginations and spiritual experiences. And so we, we know we weren't there with Jesus, but we've seen things. We've been on the mountain. We've heard the voices. We've, we've done the chants. We've had the spiritual enlightenment. And John is altogether combating that, saying, you don't need, friends, Christians, you don't need some kind of spiritual enlightening experience in a worship session with the lights flashing or somebody touching your forehead or speaking tongues over. You don't need any of that to be in fellowship on the same standing as the apostles. He's saying what you have heard 
is the testimony. If you believe it without the experience, without the, the, the fanciful spiritual Gnosticism that is still well and alive today, without that, to know what we are proclaiming to you is historical fact, that brings you into fellowship with the Son. So this life which is eternal was made manifest in history and that this life then is proclaimed authoritatively to bring fellowship and joy. Look at verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, which we proclaim also to you, proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So that the life that has been made manifest is authoritatively proclaimed so that God's people may have fellowship and joy. Satan confuses. Satan brings doubt. Satan weakens the confidence of believers who, 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 who would, if, if they are able, as John will say later, if they are able to strengthen their faith, that faith is the weapon with which they overcome the world. He'll write to them in chapter 2 saying, you who believe, you have overcome the evil one, you children in the light. And therefore Satan seeks to bring a cloud of misunderstanding, uh, confusion around the truth, lack of confidence and darkness. He seeks to turn the dimmer light way down so that the, the truth cannot be understood, so that we see with spiritual cataracts and misunderstand. And altogether, if, if the devil knows, and this he does, the devil knows that he cannot pluck God's chosen, blood-bought, spirit-sealed people out of the hand of God. He can at least bring them to lose their confidence in such reality. So is it he can pluck you out of the Father's hand and keep you from going to heaven, but he can stop you from being joyful, stop you from being effective, stop you from being joy-filled in all that God has done. For his job hungry, jealous for the truth of God, loving the flock which is his people, the, the people of his dear friend Jesus Christ, those who were bought at the, the marred crucifixion that John saw occurred, these people that his friend Jesus loved so much, that his Lord died for, he steps in to defend them with strong proclamation. Where Satan confuses and brings doubt and weakens confidence, the gospel and gospel proclaimers, true teachers, proclaim with confidence, assurance, and an absolute comprehension and apprehension of all that the light is, all that the life is. Where, where, where the devil and therefore his teachers bring confusion. God's, God's preachers, including John and all those who would preach from his book, need to be those who bring assurance confidence, absolute certainty on the proclamation and the testifying of the gospel of Jesus so that God's people may rest assured for the Spirit uses the preaching. The Spirit uses the, the truth that we believe to seal us and assure us and give us confidence. And so John writes with absolute authority. Look at what he says in verse 2. He says, that life which was made manifest and we've seen it, we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life. Then again in verse 3, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. There is certainty 
There is authority in what John says. <clears throat> the lightning had struck through the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The lightning had struck that one time, that one place, that one point in history. But after that, the thunder has been rolling throughout the world. After that moment that, that the lightning struck through Jesus, when, who is the light of the world, John and the other apostles have been the, the sound of the thunder echoing through the world, proclaiming what that light achieved. They proclaim with authority because the people of God need their consciences reassured. This hurting church needed to be strengthened again. They were hurting, unsure, uncertain. So he doesn't put forward some kind of competing theory. He doesn't put forward a, a coexistent ideology. He brings the light that makes the darkness scatter. He, he images the lightning striking, which fries anything in its way. 30,000 volts going through the pen of John into this church to re-energize and burn away all that is false. He proclaims and testifies with authority because he wants to give to them joy and assurance in the fellowship they have with God. Look back at verse 1. We're going to make a bit of a... We're sort of going to understand something that's a little bit confusing and then uh, move on from there because John, John intentionally does this. In verse 1, the question I'm asking is, what is the that in verse 1 referring to? That which we have heard and seen. Is that referring to the person Jesus, right? the Christ, the man that we knew and loved and heard teach, that we have seen and proclaimed? Or is it referring to the message about Jesus, the gospel truth that we heard we've also been proclaiming to you? Well, it's hard to know because, because John confuses the matter. He doesn't really help us out with this. John says that, and it's not who. It's not him who was from the beginning. And later on, as we read down, he doesn't say whom we have heard, whom we have seen, whom we looked upon, and whom we touched with our hands, the life whom was made manifest. He doesn't do that in verse 2 there. Who was with the Father and was made manifest to us? Whom which we have seen and heard. He doesn't do that. He uses in the Greek this, this objective um, uh, object language, not speaking of whom, but that. Speaking of, of a thing, not a person. He could have used the word that referred to people, whom, but he didn't. He rather uses the word which is rightly translated as that which, all this non-personal language. So you might read that and think, okay, so he's not actually talking about Jesus, he's talking about the message, the objective message of truth. But then you sort of go down into verse 1 and, and he says, um, which we've heard, well, you can hear a message, that which we've seen with our eyes, I guess if it's written down, you can see a message, which we've looked, down, looked on and we have touched with our hands, well, you can't really do that with a message. So now it's, okay, we're back to, it's Jesus. It's the person of Jesus. It's him, which. Uh, but then it goes back and says, right in the very next words, concerning the word of life, the, the, the message, the text, the, the word of life. Well, now we're back to the beginning. Is it a person that he's talking about or is it the message? Well, if we go back to the book of John in chapter one, we realize that to him, the Word is an eternal person. 
The Word is a personal, eternal being with God and is God in the beginning. It's, it's Him that is a Word. It's a, he uses personal language there. It's Him that was the light of men. It's Him that came into the world. It's Him that was made manifest and in, incarnated among us. It's Him that tabernacled among us. He came to His own, but He was not received. John chapter 1 in the Gospel tells us all of these things. It's Him that makes known to us the reality of the grace and truth of God. So all of this tells us that, that really it, it, it doesn't matter which way we answer that. Is it the message or is it the person? The, the real answer is not, well, it doesn't matter, but the answer is yes, it is. It is a person who is a message. It is a message that is a person. For, for there is no way to rightly understand Jesus as a person without understanding him in and through the gospel. And there's absolutely no way to make sense of any good news from God any of the gospel, if it is not entirely bound up and manifested in and through Jesus, the historical person, the God in flesh, God-man. You can't understand the gospel without Jesus. You can't understand Jesus without the gospel. It is him which was from the beginning. He is the word. He is the message that we proclaim. And yet it's the message that was from the beginning in and through Jesus. For Jesus is always clothed in the promises of his gospel. And the gospel is nothing more, Calvin would say, than Jesus clothed in his promises. The gospel and Jesus are almost synonymous, at least in the message that they bring and the fellowship that they bring to us. This is why, right? I've made that point so that we can see this is why it's so powerful. This is why the gospel message is so important to us and so powerful as it comes to a people. Because it's not just a message. It's not just a theology. It's not just an ideology or a philosophy. It's a person who is embodied in the words that are proclaimed, in the power of his spirit, powering through unbelieving hearts, bringing up spiritual life, sealing eternal life in them, and bringing them into communion of his Father. That's what the proclamation is. What, what Jesus did when he first came and did to the disciples, what he did to them was manifest the glory of God and brought them into fellowship with the Trinity, we read in John 13, 14, 15, 16. What Jesus did for the disciples was manifest and bring them into fellowship. And the exact same thing happens now as the apostles preach and proclaim Jesus they bring us into the manifestation of Jesus. They bring us into fellowship with the Trinity. So that we should not, as Jesus said in John 14, we should never wish and hope that he would bodily remain on earth forever. And, and don't you just wish we were those who got to touch and got to see and got to sit and eat with Jesus? Jesus rebuked that to his disciples. He says, blessed are you for you've seen but more blessed are those who will believe who have not seen. That's us. We should not wish that we had the real deal, Jesus actually physically among us. We should realize that in the proclamation of Jesus that John makes, the proclamation of Jesus that we make, therein is the person and work of Jesus made manifest to us 
bringing us into. If we believe, if we, if we do not reject it with unbelieving hearts, but if we believe and receive all that Jesus is clothed in his promises, we come into fellowship with the apostles, with the Father and his Son Jesus, verse 3 says. We proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. We're writing these things so that our joy may be complete, so that together we may have joy. The friends, the, the gospel that, that, that arrives through John, the gospel that has been preserved in the scriptures, is this, that there is eternal life, verse 2, that there is fellowship with the Father and the Son, that there is eternal joy, eternal blessing and forgiveness in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That because, despite what Serenthus would say, Despite what people would want to tell us today, Jesus came in a physical body. The eternal God made manifest himself, made incarnated himself, dwelt in our body. Dwelt in a body exactly like ours, except that it was without sin. So that he might be a, an empty basket which God could put all of the sin of his people into. God gave him our sin. He sent him to the cross and upon him poured out all of his wrath all of the punishment that you and I deserve, all the, the condemnation that we'd earned through our sin, God gave it all to his beloved son, Jesus Christ, as he, as he raised him up there on the cross, there forevermore is the proclamation to us today. Anybody that would bring their sin, anybody that would see Jesus dying and hear the promises through that, that you can be saved, that your justice has been met, that God will forgive you freely if you believe in Jesus. If, if you believe in that, those promises, then there is no more condemnation for you. You were brought, in John's language, into fellowship with the Father. Well, you were once an enemy who truly deserved to have fire thrown down from heaven upon you. God has made you one with him, in fellowship with him, unified and communing with him. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what John wrote to defend. This is what we bank our life and our eternity on. Can you bow with me as we pray? Father God, I pray that we would be a people who stand firm and fast against false teaching, who stand firm and fast against distractions, whether they come up from within ourselves or from the world outside or from persecutions or afflictions or difficulties. Lord, keep us standing firm and fast and joyful in the fellowship that we have with your Son. In fact, the fellowship that we have with you through your Son. Father God, I pray that we would be those who do truly take joy from what can be known about God has been made known through Jesus. That we will miss out on nothing if all that we have is Jesus. Father God, we're not waiting for a secondary experience. We're not waiting for another spiritual enlightenment. We're not waiting for something after Jesus, but in Jesus we have the fullness of all of the blessings that you will pour out on anybody. We have all grace over our sins. We have full forgiveness for our guilt. We have love and eternal life in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that today as we ponder this and tonight as we think about this, we would not close our hearts off, that if anybody would be in the church tonight and has not believed in Jesus, has not received him for salvation, has not been saved from their sin, then Lord, you would give them this new eternal 
life which is from the very beginning. Unify them to your Son. Give them holiness and righteousness. For God, yours is the power and the glory forever and ever. And we give that to you. Amen.